Hey there guys, sorry to interrupt the episode, but I just wanted to tell you that I got my real estate license in the state of Rhode Island. So if you need to buy, sell, or need help renting a property in the state of Rhode Island, feel free to reach out. Contact me at maxwellwillett at kw.com or call me at 401-487-4477 and I'd be more than happy to help you. Thanks guys and enjoy the rest of the episode. Knowledge is Power is where you come to hear people's life experiences to learn from. So, without further ado, let's roll the intro. Stay hungry, stay foolish. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Hello and welcome back to the Knowledge is Power podcast. This is your host, Max Willett, and I got another great guest on today. So if you could go ahead and introduce yourself, that would be great. Okay, great. Um, So my name is Jennifer Huff. Um, People call me Jen. I am um, married. I'm a mother of two amazing boys, or I actually should say men because they're adults now. I'm obsessed with hummingbirds. I am currently a speech language pathologist, and um, I'm a program supervisor for a speech therapy department in a school district in Rhode Island. I am also a member of the Situate Rotary Club, where um, my biggest role is that I help to manage the Situate Rotary Farmers Market. Very cool. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming on to talk about you and your life story. So why don't we get into that? This that part of the podcast. Let's hear your life story and how you got to this point of your life. Okay. Um, so let's start with my career. Um, so as a speech therapist, well, I grew up in West Warwick. Um, and after high school, I went to Rhode Island College Mm-hmm. with no direction. I, I had no idea what I wanted to do when I grew up. Um, I thought I possibly wanted to be a nurse because I had always worked as a CNA in high school. Um, so I started the program at Rhode Island College in nursing, was not a serious student at all. Um, back then, I, I don't think people had as much direction as they do now starting out. So I quickly learned what I did not want to do, and that was nursing. Um, I switched majors several times. So I can't even remember. I was just trying to think. Um, I think I went for education to be a teacher and nothing really ever felt or sat right with me. I did enjoy psychology. And then one day, I'm not sure if it was me or my best friend who saw a sign um, up in the department of psychology about a new major called communication disorders. And we said, oh, we only need five classes and we can graduate and be a speech therapist. So we researched that and it sounded like an easy, wonderful idea. And we were still pretty immature at that time. We had no idea that we'd have to go on to graduate school. Um, So we went ahead and graduated. I graduated with a degree um, from Rhode Island College and realized I had to go on for a master's um, program. And because I hadn't had the best grades and I switched majors. It was ve- it's a very competitive field, um, especially in Rhode Island because there's limited programs for it. Um, so at that time I started researching and I applied to graduate schools um, 
and, and picked one in the Midwest. So I went to graduate school um, at Western Illinois University and became a very serious student at that point um, in the area of speech therapy. And it was funny because at that time, um, you know, my parents and everyone said, oh, just take a year off and, and decide if this is really what you want. And you don't need to go all the way. You know, why would you go all the way out to the cornfields? Um, it just felt right. And it was probably the best decision I could have made. It was an excellent program. Um, I just, once I got involved, I loved working in research and in the clinic with the students. Um, so that started it. I graduated um, from graduate school and I did my internship. So we have to do a clinical internship before graduating. I did it at the Newport Hospital. And there it was all about making connections. So it was a great place to go, but I also met some wonderful people. And there was somebody who was just leaving the hospital to go work for a rehab company. And she kept tabs on me and we were, you know, stayed very friendly. And as soon as I finished my internship, she actively recruited me to go work for a company called Novacare. Um, I faced a lot of advice from my professors and, and um, mentors from school saying that would be a ridiculous move to make as a new speech therapist. Um, I should go to a school department or a hospital where I'm surrounded by others. Um, but to me, it felt like the right decision. And I went to work for a rehab company. So from there, um, I spent a couple of years learning everything I could um, from my supervisor. To become board certified, you have to work for nine months under somebody else's license. So I had support, um, enjoyed that very much, uh, work, went right up the career ladder and became a clinical resource specialist. So that meant that I then mentored other new people that were coming on board and set up programs for patients who had Alzheimer's disease, uh, set up some feeding programs, and it was uh, an excellent opportunity. So my friend who had brought me on board to this, she, our company reorganized, she ended up leaving and um, that opened up more opportunity. So I applied for her position, which was the manager of clinical operations. Um, and I remember at that time, again, hearing, you can't do that. You, you don't have a degree in management. You didn't take any classes in management. Um, but I didn't let it stop me. And I became a workaholic for the rehab company. Um, I just, I loved it so much. And it was, it was a very unique experience at that young age to have had that opportunity. So I did that for a while. And, um, and then life continued and I got married and had children. So that workaholic lifestyle wasn't really working um, for me anymore. So um, at that time, I decided to raise my children for a couple of years and to stay involved in speech therapy. And that's the beauty of uh, my profession is there are so many different opportunities for people who are looking you know, into speech therapy. I made a total turnaround and worked in early intervention. So um, that required, I just worked part-time because I had little ones of my own. And I would go to houses um, to coach parents and work with parents for children who had difficulty. Um, that wasn't my forte. And I, I, I really didn't feel like that was my place, but it, it was a nice experience to get. Um, and then 
the friend that I mentioned in the beginning who got me the job at NovaCare, and then I took her position, she ended up at the University of Rhode Island um, and contacted me, reached out. So I, I jumped, uh, the kids were a little older and I went to work for URI as a um, clinical intern supervisor when they would do their placements as part of their practicum. Love that. That was probably one of my favorite jobs, um, just being around all the college students and, and hearing about the latest research and they make, they kept me on my toes. Um, so I did that for a while. And um, again, you can switch in the profession and I really wanted to experience all of it. But my children were getting older to the point where they were now in school and having summers off. So that's when I made the biggest switch. And I joined a school system where, um, again, it's about the people that you get to work with. And I worked with a, an amazing team and the director of early childhood at the time said, you know, she understood my experience working with adults and how we could tie it in together. So we started a program in the school department and it's pretty unique. It's for children with apraxia. So at, before that, many of the children would come in and get speech therapy a half an hour, once a week. Um, a lot of them we were finding needed more. So we started a program where they would receive three hours of therapy um, in, a, in a group and I had a teacher's assistant and we're still running that group today. So well, I don't know, it's been about 12 years. Um, and then in addition to that, I recently became the program supervisor for our department um, where we have about 20, I think we have about 29 speech therapists now in the department um, that I supervise and mentor as well. And that's my, that's kind of my professional story. Yeah. Amazing professional story. Mm -hmm. sounds like you've helped out a lot of people throughout your career. And I'm very curious to ask questions because when it comes to speech therapy, I'm very lucky. You know, I, I, uh, I've grown up and not have any, have, have had any of those disabilities. So I'm a very lucky person on that part. And I couldn't imagine what it's like to have something like that. And to have people like you helping those people, you know, that's amazing. Something that I could certainly never do because I don't know. I just, I coach baseball and I complain about that. And, you know, sometimes, so <laughs> I couldn't imagine having to do that, but you know, kudos to you for picking a career of helping other people. So thank you for doing that. Um, and I guess my first question for you, uh, you know, obviously, like you said, you've, you've been and you've done a lot of things within speech therapy. What do you think is the biggest, some of the biggest strides that have happened in speech therapy throughout your career? Like what are the, the things that you've seen grow or get better in the industry? Hmm. Well, one thing that hasn't got better is healthcare because that's always changing and, and it's been hard to work within some of the guidelines that we have to with that. But I guess mm -hmm. I would say the biggest stride has been in how we manage people with medical disorders um, that interfere with their swallowing. So for, ex and that's a big part of what speech therapy does. It's not just talking to people, it's working with people, whether they've had a stroke or a head injury, Parkinson's disease, any type of a neurological, a lot of times people experience difficulty swallowing. And when I first started in my career, it was very different. We didn't have as much of the testing materials that we have now and the, the types of evaluations. So they would have to go into a hospital and have an x-ray study done. And nine times out of 10, the recommendation would be that they were they would need a feeding tube or they were not able to eat anymore. Um, and that's changed a lot. 
with more and more research now, we're learning there were so many strategies that we could implement to help patients be more safe. And the advances in the testing now where they're able to do like fiber optic testing, right, go right to a patient to their home. Um, so it's been a big advancement in the field. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. What would you say is um, like the most rewarding part of being a speech therapist? Well, it's hard to say because, you know, I'm going to say right now, I didn't mention I also have a second job in speech therapy and I do home care. Okay. So working with the children is rewarding. Um, yeah. We do see, you know, we do see progress quick with the little ones sometimes and, and being able to support and help their parents. But with home care, I find it to be very rewarding in that it doesn't even feel like being work. I'm going into the house and there's so much freedom to find out what they need to work with them. There's no time constraints. We're able to go in and address all of their needs as far as communicating and the families. It's probably the most rewarding part of my job. Absolutely. Yeah. And another, I, I have another, I think, interesting question, you know, I don't know a lot of people who are in speech therapy, but what do you think is the biggest misconception about people that have your job? Like, what do you, what do you hear a lot of people say like, oh, you're in speech therapy? You know, what do you think is the biggest misconception? Well, I, I recently had an experience with this. So especially in the school system, most people out there, I think, uh, believe that we're working on just saying sounds and, and that we can just go in and teach a, a child how to make a sound. Um, I was told by somebody actually in a very high position in the state that we could just go into a preschool and we could start playing with them with their toys and saying, ball, ball, and that they would learn how to how to get the sounds when they don't realize how much really goes into making those sounds and the motor planning and um, really what we do for that. You know, we work on so much more. People think a speech therapist works on talking, but there's, we work on processing and listening and comprehension, swallowing, like I said. Yeah. About, yeah. Know. Could you go into like a more, uh, uh, like go into a deep process of how, uh, not how you would analyze, but help somebody who has some sort of uh, disability? How would, like, what's the process you would go through? Okay, well, let's start. Well, well, I'll talk about a child and then I'll talk about an adult to answer that because okay. they're very they're very different. So yeah. the process in the school system would be I work with a little one. So when a child, you know, before three, they might have been identified already by their pediatrician and, and received some early intervention, but oftentimes by about three, when they're not speaking and they're or they're behind their peers, they'll get referred for an evaluation. And at that point, we do an evaluation of their speech and their language to get an idea of where they're at. Um, and it's really often hard because that's the first time for some of these parents that they're hearing that their child has a disability, whether it be speech and language. And at that point, we usually start speech therapy if they qualify. So if a child you know, scores, we do a test and there's um, just like with an IQ, there would be a range so if we do testing for language, the, the range, you know, an average score would be 100. But if a student falls 15 points below or above, that usually, I mean, below, um, 15 points below would usually mean a disability. And that's when we would get involved um, 
and starting with speech therapy, working with the parent, and the most important thing is getting the parents on board at that age. Um, a lot of times people think an IEP, they don't want their child to have an IEP, they'd be identified as having a disability, and we have to break through some of those barriers. Um, many children will start therapy at three, and they'll exit by the time they're five or six. Um, it, it does not have to mean this is going to be a lifelong disability, and most of the times it's not, uh, depending on, you know, the reason for it. In fact, because I feel so strongly that was one of the biggest things we could make a difference in um, when I started in the school system, I actually wrote a book um, for parents, and it was called, I'm looking at it now because I forgot the name, um, Speech Disorders, Tips, Tricks, and Tools That Parents Need to Know. You can hold it up for the camera. Is it for sale oh, on Amazon? Well, yeah, well, so no, I took it off okay. Amazon and okay. looked at the hummingbird on. Ah, the hummingbird, yes. Yeah. But um, <laughs> so it was on Amazon. I had recently, I think, last year stopped selling it because, like anything, it became outdated as far as the type of techniques we use. Mm. Um, and I, I didn't feel comfortable keeping it on. A lot of the information is still pertinent, what parents can do at home to help, but some of it and, and the models and how we provide therapy has changed over the years. Okay. All right. And then for an adult, I forgot what the question was. <laughs> oh, no, that's OK. Uh, what are like what is the process you go through? All right. So same thing. It's very similar with an adult. So we're going to take one of the most common things that might I might get called in for an adult would be someone who suffered a stroke. So if a patient had a stroke and they were in the hospital, they usually either go to short-term rehab or they'll go home for home care. I'll go in and assess their language. And there can be so many, we don't look at scores now with adults. We look at their functional communication. They could have aphasia, which they may know something. They may know that this is a coffee cup, but mm. they're unable to get the words out to say coffee cup. Um, they may have cognitive linguistic problems with their memory. So they're not able to remember something that happened five minutes ago and they need strategies or they need to improve that. So at that point, we would go in and do an evaluation and find out functionally, what are they having difficulty with? Do we expect some improvement? Because usually after a stroke, you will get spontaneous improvement of the brain, but also um, we want to get in there and really stimulate that and identify compensatory strategies and things the caregivers can do. And we assess their swallowing as well, because that's often affected in many disorders with um, the elderly or people who've suffered neurological issues. Mm. What are some of the exercises you do with different people to help them? I, you were mentioning in your book how you can do things to help people. So uh, what, are, what are some exercises you've done? All right. So, well, for exercises, you know, if we have somebody who is having difficulty due to weakness, so there may be a child who has cerebral palsy or a weakness that we're working on trying to improve some function, we might actually go in and do some oral exercises. But the type of things that I would include in my book um, for parents was more about once the speech therapist has achieved, say, a sound, we're working on certain sounds or words levels. Um, we may have parents practice at home in different ways. So there, you know, we have to make it fun for the children. Um, they don't usually want to work on speech sounds when they get home and what they won't do with their parents. So giving them ideas like how to play games where we would hide some of the pictures around the house 
and um, they could play games that way. You know, making a Jenga game with the words written on them. Um, that's more of the type of techniques that we would give a parent. The other thing is there's parents that will, they hear a diagnosis. So they may hear at a meeting with me that their child has apraxia of speech. Well, I try to explain it and still they'll go home and they will just, what, what are they gonna do? They're gonna Google it, right? Mm -hmm. So we also wanna make sure that we provide them with the best information out there. And if they are going to go Google information to provide parents with the correct websites to go to um, and also providing them, and this is something new we're working on, uh, my team is working on in the school department, is to-go cards. So giving parents an idea, this is what you can do with your child at dinner time to, to practice so that they're not even understanding that they're practicing speech therapy, but to give them ways to incorporate it into their routines. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. And that sort of ties into my next question. Is there anything that you see that's that's widely spread about speech therapy that is, is dangerous and something that you shouldn't be doing if you have a child at home or somebody else in your family? Is there something that you've seen and you're like, whoa, 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 that's not true. You know, oh. don't do that. Um, I'm not sure about that, but the one thing that I'm, that I am seeing that they should not be doing, I'm seeing a lot of people now after COVID and I'm not judging the parents, but this is something we're seeing now. And, and we want people to pull back on is tablets. Mm. So to get children to be, you know, to be quiet while parents are on zoom meetings, like you, you and I are like right now, I gave my dog a bone so he wouldn't be barking during our interview. Um, but with children and during this whole pandemic, they were watching tablets all of the time. So that has had a significant impact. And I have seen such an increase in children coming in that are just delayed with it. So they don't have a disorder, but everything is kind of behind with that. So trying to kind of work on that. And I want to go up to people in the grocery stores. I see children being pushed in the carriage and their mom shopping and they're on their tablets or their phones. And I just want to go up to those parents and say, listen, this is such a great opportunity for language. You can, you know, talk to them, pick up the apple and say, which one is bigger or, oh, do you like the, there's so many opportunities in the grocery store. I just want to scream it from the rooftops. <laughs> yeah, that is something that I see a lot. Like I'm sure anybody who goes into a public area it's just kind of sad, you know, like there's no interaction. The kid is just sort of an attachment and they're just being yeah. dragged around and they have their iPad out. And it's 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 just you can tell like it's not healthy because like there's so many other productive things that they could be doing. Right. Even right. at home, like don't get me wrong, like I love technology. I play video games, you know, but I'm not sitting for hours upon hours doing that and have no social life. You know what I mean? And when you're young, even if they're just at home, like I just, I just can't see that being a healthy thing. It's not. Yeah. It's not. And the, and the thing I would love every parent to do um, for children, you know, from birth until, until they don't want it anymore is to read to them because mm. children learn so much just from hearing books. Um, and it's a great way to learn language. And it's probably one of the best things parents of very young children can do, even before they understand the words on the page. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to give a shout out to my own mom here. 
my name, uh, you know, everybody who's listening to the podcast, you know, my name is Max, obviously, and I'm named after Max from where the wild things are. That's what my mom says. So, (laughs) but yeah, so shout out to my mom. She's the best. But as of recent, so like I never was like after, you know, parents stopped reading and then in high school and middle school or whatever, you would read books. I never been like a big reader. Like I wasn't the type of person to sit down and read it, you know, read a good book. You know what I mean? Nowadays, like I find myself wanting to and I force myself to do it like a couple of years ago or a year and a half ago or whatever, when the Dune, the new Dune movie came out. Right. I'm a, I, I loved it. I'm like, this is amazing. I need to figure out what happens at the end of it. And this particular movie, this new version of Dune is only the first part, like half of the first book. So I'm like, all right, well, there's no other way for me to find out what happens unless I read the book. So I got the book on the Kindle and I got the audio book as well. And I sort of followed along and listened to it. And it was awesome. Like it was a really good engaging audio book. You know, I had the noises and the sounds and everything like that. And then as of recently, everybody who listens to the podcast or listens to past episodes have heard that I given myself a shout out that I have my real estate license. So I've been reading real estate books. There's the millionaire real estate agent by Gary Keller. And there's this other book who's it's not really a real estate book. It's called Profit First. It helps you run your business and and what to do with financials and different bank accounts and whatnot. Really interesting stuff. And and it's just like when you're in a class, right? If you just sit there and listen, you're not going to remember unless you sit down and you write it. You know what I mean? Yeah. When you're reading, you take in the information better because you're seeing it. You know what I mean? And it's almost like stored in your mind. And but you're absolutely right about, you know, reading it. It it, it definitely has helped me. You know, like if you look at if, if you look at my profit first book, I'm going to pull it out here. I got like sticky notes all throughout it. You know what I mean? Like we're notes and, and things like that. It's It's I don't know, like it's not something that if you told me five years ago that you know, Max, you're going to have three books in your backpack all the time. I would, you would, I would have said you're crazy. <laughs> you know what I mean? But you're absolutely right. And do you think that there are benefits like in your industry with, with technology as well? Like, like you said, some of the biggest strides have been throughout technology. Yeah. 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 I had mentioned like in the medical field, but yes, definitely. We also, we do use apps sometime in speech therapy, um, you know, with children and especially for it to get them engaged um, there's definitely good apps that we use. Every speech therapist now carries an iPad. Um, and it, that's really no different than, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, when I started, we'd have giant workbooks. So now it's, it's just all, it's easier mm. that way, but it, nothing beats playing and human interactions. Um, and we have children now who start kindergarten. And they maybe hadn't even been identified yet as having speech and language. And sometimes, you know, we'll hear people say, oh, just wait, they just got to school. Let's give them a chance. They, they've got to catch up. It only takes, you only need one person to learn language as a human. So you could be on a deserted island. And if you were with your mom and she was able to communicate and talk, you would learn language. Um, so it's really that human interaction that we piece that mm. we want to keep. Yeah, absolutely. And and something I want to sort of backtrack, you know, or kind of backtrack, but what's something, you know, obviously you've been in speech therapy for a little while now. 
what is something that you wish you knew when you first got started? Like if you could go back and tell yourself something, what was, what's that piece of advice? I would tell myself that children aren't as scary as I thought they were. So I wanted to work with adults and I worked with adults who had traumatic brain injury. And oftentimes they could become, because of the brain injury, very violent. People were scared. You know, they, you may work with a patient who would stand up and flip the desk because they had trouble with impulse control and anger. And none of that scared me. I was petrified of working with three-year-olds. So I avoided working with with children for more than the first half of my career. So I wish I would have known then how, how enjoyable and rewarding it is to work with kids. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And what's some of the, you said you have worked with uh, Alzheimer's patients or people with dementia before. So how, how does someone like, how do you work with those people? Because I mean, that, I mean, it just seems like they're not going to remember it or is it just to keep them like active sort of like speaking exercises? You know what I mean? Is it like that? Kind of. So there's two different things that that we could do. And this had a a place very close to my heart. My dad had Alzheimer's disease. Um, I had worked in a nursing home in high school. So I had been exposed to a lot. And with speech therapy, that was my first, you know, my first favorite patients, I should say. Um, We do two things. So with the patients that are newly diagnosed with any form of dementia, and there's over 50 different causes of dementia. So Alzheimer's is one of them. Some forms of dementia are much slower to progress, and we may go in and try to give them activities and different types of cognitive exercises, perhaps, like uh, we could work on recall following a delay. We might work on mental flexibility and doing different types of problems with them. Um, And it's not something we would do long term. It would be things we would provide them with home programs and things to do. But what's more common is really working with the caregivers because with Alzheimer's, they do progress. They aren't going to remember things. And sometimes they can become very argumentative. Um, They get upset and and we don't want that. It's all about quality of life. So working with the families on ways to reduce some of those behaviors or or negative consequences, it may seem like common sense, but I've, I've worked with families where, you know, perhaps there's a husband and he keeps asking for his wife who's passed away. Well, he's forgot that his wife passed away. And every time somebody, people think they have to do reality orientation and tell them, no, she passed, your wife passed away. It's like they hear it for the first time, every time they hear it. So we go in and and work on things like um, reminiscence therapy, providing memory books and things that can just lead them down to a path where they can be reminded of pleasant things and and help stimulate some of those positive memories or reminiscing to back to 20 years ago, showing them pictures, you know, of a a rotary telephone or Mm. telephone booths, things that just don't exist anymore, but that's where their mind is. Yeah. So, so that's what you would recommend for just families to do is just to sort of, I mean, what would you do? Like, so if, if somebody brings that up you know they're asking for their you know spouse who has passed away like on in the moment like they ask it what's the first thing that should come out of your mouth like what do you what should they say 
Well, a, a lot of times, even more so than a spouse, is they're always, a lot of times they're asking for their parents. Like, yeah. if they're, they're, they'll say, my mother's worried about me and their mother's passed away, but they'll be saying, my mother's so worried, I have to get home. And so it's okay to say, you're safe. Your mother knows you're safe. Everyone okay. knows you're here with us. It's more reassuring and in kind of in a calm way. Yeah. Okay. So it's, yeah, you, you don't want to, you know, get in an argument with them no. or anything like that. You just, you just got to take a deep breath and you don't have to lie. You could just, you know, like you just said, you know, just, just tell them they're safe. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, really interesting stuff. Uh, and I don't want to like super flip the topic, but you had mentioned that you also are with the Rotary Club in your area and, and are with the farmer's market up in Northern Rhode Island as well. Yeah. So if you could explain how you sort of got into that and, and why you got into that, I think that would be, that would be pretty cool. Okay. Yes. Cause this is my hobby and yeah. I'm very passionate about the farmer's market. I think that's yeah. what we first talked about when we, yeah. when we had spoke. Um, yeah. So yeah. So I had mentioned my dad actually had Alzheimer's. I had young children. I was very busy with all my jobs and my parents have passed away. My children are in college. And I just kind of left a little bit of time. And um, somebody from the Situate Rotary Club had asked my husband, um, who's very involved in town things, if he would like to join the Rotary Club. And he said, no. He's like, you, you don't want me. You want my wife. She, that's, she's more of a do-gooder. So we joke about it. So I joined the Rotary Club. And um, it was something to do. And involved in like the playground. And we have a garden um, and I enjoyed it, but I, there was nothing that I wasn't overly passionate about. And then one day, um, we have a farmer's market in town that's been around for about 20-something years. And the library ran it for a while and did a great job. But they were starting to, you know, burn out and get tired. They came to our club and asked if we would take it over. And I remember hearing about it. And in my head, I thought, oh, this sounds like a great idea. I I think I want to do this, but nobody really wanted to do it. Um, and you need a committee, you know, to do anything in a club. You can't just be a one person. So it was kind of getting shot down. And um, the person, one of the people who worked at the library, he brought it up to a member who wasn't there. And she said, oh, I would do it with Jen. So we got excited and three of us formed a committee. We took over the farmer's market and um, COVID happened. So the year that we were going to start, which was actually kind of a blessing. But I came home, well, I'll back up a little bit. Um, I came home and I told my husband about it. And he said, what do you mean you get around the farmer's market? He said, you don't know anything about running a farmer's market. You don't know anything about farmers. And I was like, yeah, but I'm going to do this. I didn't care what he thought. Um, so we went ahead and um, COVID happened. And farmer's markets were allowed to open. But it became just, I think that's why it's so special to my heart now, because it was the one place people could go, um, things were just starting to open up. We had to follow so many guidelines and learn so much, but everybody had to learn. Mm. And we, we attracted, we had new vendors joining us because for one, we had a caterer and she's an amazing caterer, but there was no events. So she reached out and joined our farmer's market. We had a florist who did weddings. She reached out because there were no weddings. There were no parties. Um, so we actually got off to a really good start. And um, we, we've been doing it now for three years. 
and we won best of Rhode Island monthly magazine. And nice. that was congratulations. Thank you. That was, that was great. And that was because our customers are so loyal and supportive and voted for us. Um, yeah. There's so many good farmers markets out there, but we try, we try not to be just a regular farmer's market. Now we follow all the DEM guidelines. So um, the farm it's about the farmers and mm. um, 80% of what they bring comes from their farms. Um, but we also have other vendors as well, homemade crafts. We, you know, we don't have any, I, I'm not sure what those businesses are called, but like if a Tupperware company came in or it's nothing like that, it has to be made by small business um, owners. We have a, we have an author. So the local authors in Rhode Island, we invite one who comes to set up every week for free. We have live music and they donate all their, they do collection drives and donate their tips or their, um, they collect food for food drives. So every, I would say every month we try to do at least one or two things for the community through the farmer's market. Yeah, great. Yeah, I I think, I mean, farmers are super important to the economy in the United States and to support them. That's amazing. So thank you for that. Uh, and people don't realize there's a lot more farmers than you would expect in Rhode Island, especially like, and they're all generational farmers, because if somebody wanted to start a farm nowadays, they'd have to have a few mil in their pocket to go buy some land, which is, you know, so uh, it's definitely something that's very interesting and, and something a lot of people don't realize it in Rhode Island. But when I mean, you come down, I mean, I'm in South County, Washington County. A lot of people call it South County, but it's Washington County. And you got turf farms, but there's farms in Matunic and all over the place. You know, people don't realize it. You know, and in situate, most of our farmers, like you can't get produce any fresher than that because they mm -hmm. literally pick the produce that morning and they drive like three miles to the farmer's market. So that's yep. how close it, it's coming. And if you want to interview some really cool people for your podcast, um, you should come check out the farmer's market and I'll introduce you because there's some really unique stories there. Absolutely. Yeah. I haven't had any farmers on, so it'd be really cool to talk to some people, you know, because um, I remember, well, my dad, his first job was at a potato farm. I can't remember if it was a newspaper or potato farm, but he tells me he's like, whenever I would complain about, you know, one of my first jobs, he's like, oh, when I was out in the field, I was, you know, knee deep in manure and and, stuff. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> and i'm just like yeah you're right working at a hardware store is not nearly as difficult <laughs> as shuffling in the potato field in the summer <laughs> you know it's even true. in maine it's hot in the summer you know um but yeah i mean it, it, absolutely amazing you know to support farmers and thank you for that and i just want to give you a shout out because it seems like something that's reoccurring throughout your life is you like to take risks and a lot of people are afraid to do that so thank you for taking risks and you know doing what you want to do so shout out to you well, <laughs> yeah absolutely you know that's that's the whole point you know i feel like it, what's the point of living like a generic you know life why wouldn't you want to take risks? You know, so and you obviously you have to weight the risk. What's going to what's the worst case scenario? But most of the time, what's the worst case scenario? It's going to be the answer is going to be no or I can't do that. Never hurts to ask. Never hurts, hurts to look into something. If you really want to do it, do it. You know, take risks. It's OK. And obviously weight the risk as well. And um, thank you for doing that. Yeah, that's that's 
when it all the way back into college, you know, getting into speech therapy and now with the farmer's market taking risks. So can, yeah. Yeah. Shout out to you. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to hear, I mean, you're talking to these farmers all the time, right? So what do you feel like is like the modern struggle for a farmer right now? Like what's something that you hear them talking about a lot? Well, you know, they had a lot of challenges, especially last year with, you know, I'm sure you heard about all, you know, the issues with pro, not propane. I'm having a word. I'm having word finding difficulties, um, okay. but with, with gas, you know, with, with what they needed to power their machinery. The okay. costs were so expensive yeah. that it, it was really extremely difficult for them mm -hmm. to be able to. And they try not to raise their prices. But when you have to pay so much to run your equipment, that's a huge, a huge issue for our farmers Absolutely. as well. And I had, I had fun. I, I think it was last year or the year before. It was the second year because it was this third year, I know, second year. I, um, I went to all the farms because mm -hmm. I wanted to know where the food was coming from too. So, and you can, you can see some of that if you ever go back on our Facebook page. Um, I went and interviewed them and I, I went to Salisbury farm. That was super fun. He put me right on his tractor and we drove around the farm, um, you know, and got to see that. I went to Martinelli's farm and, um, you know, got to see the pigs and it was just a whole eye opener to what they do on a daily basis. Yeah. Very cool. You know, what's a really great show is Clarkson's farm on Amazon. I don't know if you've seen that. No. What's it called? Clarkson's farm. So the, the guy that runs the show, his name is Jeremy Clarkson, and it was sort of a eye-opening experience for him. He was not a farmer. He's in his 60s, and he grew up in he's in London. They're they're in England. He grew up, I think, outside of London, you know, a city guy. And he was a motor journalist on a show called Top Gear. I don't know if you know that show for a long, long time. Then he got a show with Amazon uh, doing the same thing. And then during COVID, right, I think right before COVID, he went and bought a bunch of farmland in England and he started to run a farm. And he's like, this is the most difficult thing I've done in my life. And he says he appreciates people so much more. He never would have appreciated it if it if it wasn't for him doing this. And it's a really, really interesting show that that has a perspective of a stuck up rich guy from the city going and buying some farmland. And I think it, I mean, just from the show alone, it seems like it, it, it changed him as a person, you know, like during COVID <laughs> he's like sort of a comedian too. So he called his farm shop, the diddly squat farm, you know, like, <laughs> uh, which is kind of a funny name. And uh, he had all these people coming to his farm and, and, and it was just a really, really great show. And one of those shows is like a feel good show. You know what I mean? Uh, so I definitely would recommend it. I, I feel like Amazon should be sending me some money right now. But uh... yeah, I'm going to I'm <laughs> definitely going to watch that one. Yeah, it's funny. And there's this guy on there. You know, his name is Gerald, I think. And shout out to Gerald. But the poor guy is like he, he definitely needs a speech therapist. Oh, he you know, he's obviously from London or from England, and he's got a really, really deep accent. It's like somebody from, the, you know, a South that, you know, probably, you know, has never left the South and talks 
you know, really fast, but with a Southern accent and you just have no clue what they're saying. You know what I mean? <laughs> but yeah, so it's just, it's, it's a great show. Very eye opening and uh, definitely worth the watch. So yeah, Clarkson's farm, Amazon, I will be sending you the invoice for the sponsorship. Um, uh, yeah, I will check that one out. Well, you, I mean, even some of our newer farmers. So yes, we have the farmers that have been doing it for, uh, you know, hundreds of years and their family. But then there's a whole new, what, I don't know if it's a whole new, but what I'm seeing is people, young people. So we have one and chaos farm the, we call her, she's called the blue haired farmer. And she's just, she started an al- alpaca farm mm. because she wanted to be home with her children. She raises alpaca now and has her own business started. Um, somebody else just moved into our town and started a small farm with just a few goats. And now she's making goat soap and, and really making it a whole way of life. So there's there's so much more to it. Yeah, how do you make money raising alpacas? So she um, she makes the most beautiful, so she sells their fur. So okay. you, you have them and alpaca is, is very sought after, mm. you know, and, and even a pair of alpaca mittens go for probably $100 for a nice oh, pair wow. of mittens. So, and she, you know, and she supplements with other ways too. Her farm is so fun that mm. she opens it up to people to come to her farm and to visit the alpacas at certain okay. times of the year. And people are really getting creative with the things they do to be able to have the life they want. Mm. What a funny animal alpacas. I know. <laughs> but um, yeah. Awesome. Well, I mean, it's been an absolutely amazing conversation uh, so far. And yeah, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, every, uh, you know, very two very different topics, speech therapy and then farmer's market. You know? <laughs> but uh, it both very interesting either way. And thank you for sharing your life story and sharing your knowledge. You're welcome. Thank you yeah. for having me. Absolutely. And I'm sure if, since you listened to a couple of episodes, you know what the final question of every podcast is. I do. Yes. So if you were to leave one piece of advice to the listener, what would that piece of advice be? Well, I was I remember this question, so I was thinking about it a little bit today. But, you know, I think it would be. Follow your thoughts, control your thoughts, because mm. thoughts are powerful. Mm-hmm. And I always heard um, a saying, and I don't know where it came from, so I can't quote the person. I hope I don't get in trouble for that. But it's something like, if you think you can, whether you think you can or you think you can't, either way, you're going to be right. Um, And I think that's true. So I think I've seen that happen throughout my life with whatever it was that I was going to do. And with that, that goes along with it is, this is probably not going to be as uplifting as some of your other recommendations and advice, but don't listen to other people. So we have many people in our life that are well-meaning and they're going to give us advice. Um, and I always say, oh, that's an interesting piece of advice, but I don't care. So you can only care about what you really want for yourself. Um, and it's not being selfish. Um, you know, you don't want to live in a bubble and just be with positive people who think the same way, but you don't have to let other people's opinions direct your life. Absolutely. Well, since this is a close, a PG podcast, opinions are like, you know, everybody's got one. Everybody knows that saying. 
Yes. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's I think that's great advice. Um, I don't think that's not uplifting. I think it's definitely uplifting, and I really appreciate you sharing that advice as well. Um, so yeah, thank you again, Jennifer, for coming okay. on. This has been an absolutely amazing conversation, and I can't wait for people to listen to it. Uh, so just so you know, I don't know if you've heard this on other podcasts, but you can get episodes weeks in advance for as little as $3 a month on Patreon, right? So this podcast is being recorded the 22nd of February and it won't be posted uh, for a couple more weeks. So if you are a fan of the podcast and you can't wait to hear the next episode, you got to go subscribe on Patreon and you'll even get previews of upcoming guests coming onto the podcast. Uh, so go and support the podcast. And if, if you're feeling really nice, if you're feeling really nice, you can subscribe for $10 a month. I'm going to be honest with you. There's really no other benefit other than just supporting the podcast okay. and, and getting the message out. Knowledge is power and getting to talk to more great people like Jennifer here. Uh, so thank you again. Thank you very much for coming on. And thank uh, yes, thank you all for listening. Oh, and do you want to give a shout out to the Farmer's Market Facebook page as well? Sure. So we're on Facebook. We are on Instagram. Um, you can come follow us. And you know what? If anyone has any questions about anything, they can private message me on Facebook, mm -hmm. too. I'd be happy to. Um, What's the official have... name on Facebook of the Farmer's Market? Oh, I got to look that up. Wait, give uh, me one minute. That's OK. It I will, I will wait, stall. Wait. That's OK. We... I got it right here. Situate Rotary Farmer's Market. Great. So go follow them. And if you live in Rhode Island, go visit them. So when are you guys starting back up again? Are you guys still going? Yep. So we start Mother's Day weekend. And the biggest thing I want to let people know is Situate is not the other side of the world. We are literally like 10 minutes from the highway from 295. Mm -hmm. you, it's really worth coming to Situate. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you live in Rhode Island and you're down where I am, people think Situate is Mars. So I know <laughs> I was in Smithfield over the weekend and I'm like, man, like, am I going to have to get a plane to get out here? <laughs> True. But for those people that don't live in Rhode Island, there's like the Rhode Islander mentality that if where you're going was isn't within 20 minutes, it's a day trip, you mm -hmm. know, because it's just so there's just so many people and there's so many things and you really don't have to go you know, further than 20 minutes to get somewhere or do something. So yeah, it's not like where my, my dad's from in Northern Maine is they would drive an hour, hour and a half, sometimes further to go play basketball against another school. You know what I mean? So <laughs> whereas in Rhode Island, there's like 20 schools within 20 miles, you know, <laughs> but yeah. So, all right. Thank you very much, Jen, for coming on. Okay. Thank you all for listening to the knowledge is power podcast. Make sure to go follow us on Instagram and Facebook, and I will catch you guys in the